Amen. All right, we pick back up in 1 Peter 5. Uh, last week, we saw a word given to the church leaders, the elders, and a reminder to them about how to shepherd God's flock willingly, eagerly, as examples, yes, waiting to receive the reward because as an elder, we've done our work with Jesus empowering and helping us. And in today's passage, Peter will turn his attention to those who are younger and, and then to the entire church. So we're going to read the entire section, but we're really focused on verse five today. Verse one, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing, uh, overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He starts off in verse 5 saying, in the same way, or your Bible might say, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Likewise, in the same way, seems to be out of place because he didn't just tell the elders to be subject to the young people or anyone else. And so why would he insert that, that, that phrase to, seem to draw a connection to something previously? And it seems that the, this is an issue, uh, this instruction of submission of the young people to the elders is connecting it to the earlier passages that say similar things, going all the way back to chapter 2 where Peter is explaining how it works in society with governing authorities, that God has established them, and so we submit to governing and civil authorities. And then in the workplace, he enslaves masters in the first century, but for us, it's bosses and employees. And so employees submitting to their bosses and whoever's in charge of them at work. And then on into chapter 3 with wives and husbands, and now those who are younger to the elders follow their leadership. So the question is, well, then who are those who are younger? And the consensus among scholars, lots of debate, seems to be the most obvious. Peter is speaking to those who are younger in the congregation. And you might say, well, then why is he speaking to them and not everyone? Isn't everyone supposed to follow the leadership of elders? And yes, we know from other, other passages like Hebrews 13, we'll look in a little bit, that the entire church follows the leadership of those men that God's put in place. But here, Peter gives specific instruction, and it seems that Peter is highlighting that, generally speaking, those who are younger have a harder time following leadership within the local church, and they need a little extra encouragement. And if that population is expected to subject themselves to the elders, the population that tends to be more rebellious, generally speaking, then the implication is that it applies to everyone. So what is this is not saying, this is not saying elders are always right, just do whatever they say. This doesn't say the elder's voice is equal in authority to God's voice. It's not. The only authority the elders have is as we stand on God's word, proclaim God's word, and lead the people of God to obey the commands of God because we love Jesus. That's our only authority. Obviously, not every single thing an elder says or every single thing that comes out of our mouth is scripture. So there has to be some other degrees of trust in when we talk about things that aren't specific to scripture. But it, if, even in those areas, if it seems that decisions are leading you to apply biblical truth and biblical principles and precepts of the Bible to your life, then you can follow their leadership because it's for your good. And the structure that God has put in place in the local church is one of the elders leading and the church following their leadership. Like 
We get this. It's human dynamics. You get any group of people in a room and there's going to be leaders who emerge. This is why we watch Survivor. This is why we watch Big Brother and shows like this. Let's see what happens. You get a bunch of people in a room. Who, who takes the lead? Who's going to be the quiet person kind of working behind the scenes? And so God knows that about us. He knows we need leadership. And so in all areas of life, he's established structures of leadership for our good. Now we messed it up because we're sinful, but they're still there. We don't throw out the structures just because we're sinful. God doesn't throw out the structures himself. They're there for our good. This is not saying only the young people have to be subject to the elders. So if you're older than a particular elder, you don't have to listen to them. So, you know, all of you who are younger than Jesse, you have to listen to all of us. And all of you who are older than Jesse and younger than Joseph, then you just have to listen to me and Joseph. And if you're older than Joseph, but younger than me, then you can be subject to to me. If you're older than me, just do whatever you want. Who cares? You probably already do that. (laughs) It's not saying anything about age in that sense. It's. Uh, all who are younger, the entire church be subject to the elders, especially you who struggle with following this kind of leadership. Um, it's, it's held up pretty much throughout human history that it's harder to follow leadership when you're younger. Now, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, that's the group for whom it's harder, uh, where there tends to be more rebellion. Uh, and hopefully the more mature believer who's walked with the Lord, it's generally easier to follow this leadership. Now, look, I can name old people in churches that I've pastored who are incredibly rebellious, that are incredibly cantankerous. Uh, I know of a church where there's an old guy who just votes against everything. And the reason he votes against everything is just so they make sure they count the votes. And that's incredibly a a misunderstanding of why the church would even do something like that. But that's who he is. And, And I could name names of people I've pastored now. I also know some young people who are incredibly humble and easier to pastor, like a lot of the young people in the Crossing Church. I'm incredibly grateful for the conversations I've had with people younger than me who are so sensitive and humble and eager to be have their lives in line with the word of God and the spirit of God. It's always beautiful and refreshing. We are helped to understand this half verse by looking at a few other verses that look at some of the same dynamics. We walk through these in detail. Uh, when we went through Hebrews last year, Hebrews 13, 7. Uh, Remember the leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. And then a few verses later, verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Like we all we, we as elders have this accountability that we'll face one day that we'll stand before God and we will have to give an account for how we cared for your souls. Like we, we face that the souls of our people, not the entire city. This is why we have covenant membership. We want to know who our people are so that we know who we're held accountable for caring for. And there's a there's a clear relationship there. Um, and this is the flock he's given us. And then follow that leadership that God's put in place that helps care for your soul. Like we should be living lives worthy of imitation. We should shepherd your souls well. And when we aren't living those lives, there's, there's a plan in place like 1 Timothy 5 to hold us accountable and call us out. Uh, for not leading well, there's things that can be done to help hold us accountable and, and steer us in the right direction. Like it's not a dictatorship, all right? Divine fiat. This is not a cult. Okay, there's a process in place and there's things that are available to the people of God to get rid of poor leadership. And we would be the first to say, if we're doing a bad job, get rid of us. 
find, find better leaders. If we're not striving to live this out and we're not striving to lead you well in a way that's good for your soul, please get rid of this. Find new leaders. Now, um, that doesn't always happen. As you know, pastors don't always care for the souls of their people well. And so you, the church, we should be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Paul and Silas go to Berea and begin to teach in the synagogue about Jesus and his gospel. And Luke records in Acts 17, 11, The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So there should be that accountability in place. Are we leading you according to God's word? Not like you have a hard cynicism, like you're just assuming we're doing a bad job. So you see everything we do through the, the lens of you're doing a bad job. I don't trust you. That, that's a hard hearted cynicism, but a healthy accountability. If you hear us say something and you're like, I don't know if the Bible teaches that, then there's some healthy skepticism. Like, OK, let's look at it. Let's examine the word of God. And we've had those conversations uh, with people before. Um, Especially when you get to difficult passages, difficult to understand or passages that are difficult to believe. It might take some work to get there. Hopefully we'll be open and honest with you. Like, hey, these truths that we're discussing, these are closed handed issues. Like these are essential to being a Christian, essential to our faith. And so things like the triune nature of God, the divine and human nature of Christ, salvation by grace through faith and not works, the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, many others. The church has over time debated them, but the church in general has come to a place where we have confidence this is true. And to deny these closed handed issues means you're unraveling the gospel. Like you're creating a belief system where you can't be saved. Because if it's by works, you can't do enough to be saved. How are you ever going to know that you have salvation? And so there are closed handed issues, not a lot that are essential to believe to be a Christian. But there are many, many more open handed issues where there's much room to disagree and debate. And, and we can be a part of the same church and have a difference of opinion on many, many things. You know, you don't have to school your kids in a certain way to be part of the crossing. You don't have to be an LSU fan to be a part of the crossing. It just makes me pray for you more. But you don't have to be. You don't have to, to, to do other certain things, live in certain neighborhoods, have same last names or whatever. Have a certain kind of job. Parent your kids in a certain way to be part of the crossing. There's a wide variety of opinions on those things. Um, but we also there I might have a conversation with somebody where, OK, you're you're here on this issue and we're here on this issue. And it probably is better if you just find another church, because um, this is really a core essence of who we are. So if you uh, believe one thing about baptism that was totally out of line with what we believe with the crossing, it might be better to find a church in a different denomination that taught what you believe about baptism or communion or church leadership or or other things. And that's totally OK had a conversation this past week with someone like that that was with us for a while and parted ways and I was I found out how much they're celebrating being a part of their new church and I sent a message to the the husband like man I'm I'm thrilled like it makes my heart so happy that you guys are serving the Lord where you're at and thriving and loving your local church like you're taking you're being cared for and you're caring for others the elders do not declare our words from the mountain of God as divine fiat. Like this is what we say. Just do it. No, our authority is in declaring God's word. And the way it should look is following our leadership helps you follow the leadership of the Lord, closely aligning your life with his word. 
Uh, but certainly we get off and we need accountability. And certainly sometimes the people of God don't want to heed wise counsel and don't want to align their life with God's word. And so there needs to be hard conversations. We still have all, all of us really sinful and rebellious hearts, even as believers. And we need each other to help us stay in this place where we can be healthy and thrive because our lives are adhering to God's commands as much as possible. Knowing there are still a ton of gray areas where we have to show grace and love because we don't have to agree. There can be unity because we do have the same spirit. What we don't really want or not, we're not striving for is uniformity. Where we're all just identical little clones of each other. We're not interested in that. We want unity, but we want diversity. We'd love to be a church full of people who vote Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, and maybe even somebody who votes for Kanye if he runs again. You know, just as diverse as the kingdom of heaven will be one day. Because we don't make the, po the political parties that we align with this idol that we hold up. It's, it's subservient to the body of Christ, the union we have because of Jesus. And so we can be a church here in the flesh, physically as diverse as the kingdom of God is. Which, I mean, you all know, like as the political factions are literally tearing our country apart. People are in almost warlike camps at this point. Red and blue, red and blue. To have a church that is a blending of all of that would be really distinct and really set apart because it feels like the church is just following the culture. The red churches, the blue or the purple ish churches. And so we want that kind of diversity, diverse in ethnicity, diverse in economic levels, levels, diverse in educational levels. Like where else will we see that besides sporting events, maybe, but it can be the church as well. And a huge part of the formula to get there is what we see in the rest of verse five where he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now he's addressing everyone, all of you, elders included, clothe yourself in humility toward one another. Yes, we have these structures of leadership in society, the workplace, the home, and the church, but the only way it really works in a healthy way is this, if everyone, that's the key, everyone is living out humility toward one another. Like the language clothe yourself was a word that was used to describe tying on of an apron. Now I wonder where Peter ever saw a picture of humility related to tying on of an apron. A lot of you know John chapter 13. You can turn there if you want to since we don't have a screen. Uh, John chapter 13, the night of Jesus' arrest. Before they share in the Passover meal for the last time, before Jesus takes the bread and the wine for the first time as the Lord's Supper and gives that, that eschatological, that, that final and forever meaning to that meal. Just hours before Jesus in agony is praying in the garden, sweating out little drops of blood, where moments later Judas would show up with a temple guard to illegally have him arrested and illegally tried. Hours before Jesus would willingly climb on the cross and give his life for us. Just hours before all of that, Jesus and his closest followers gather again for the last time before his passion is displayed. And a job needs to be done at this, at this moment in time, the job of washing the feet of those who have gathered. Like you know how hot and dry it's been here the last few weeks. Imagine over the last few weeks, you've walked on dirt roads everywhere all day long in a pair of sandals with no socks. How disgusting your feet would be. 
And the job of the servant when people would gather to eat would be to go around and wash their feet. Like, think about it. You're sitting on the ground. Your feet are close to your face. They're disgusting. They're dirty. They smell. You're trying to eat when they're literally inches from your face. Like some of you have feet issues. You might be like, I'm about to leave if you don't stop describing this scene. It's really disgusting. Now, this is the end of Jesus' ministry. There's no more mystery in their mind about who he is. They've seen all the miracles. There's no more miracles except for the resurrection to come and the healing of the the guard's ear when Peter cut his ear off. They've seen him walk on water, calm the storms, cast out demons, heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, the leper, the paralyzed. There's not a single sickness, demon, or act of nature that Jesus hasn't demonstrated divine authority over. And oh, by the way, he raised three dead people on top of that. Even power over our most feared enemy, death. They've been to the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen Jesus in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah making uh, them two making resurrection appearances. There was zero question in their mind. Their rabbi, their master was God in the flesh. Jesus, the Messiah, fully worthy of all honor, glory and worship. And this Jesus walks over and clothes himself with an apron, a towel and a basin or bowl of water begins to make his way around to each disciple to do the job of the lowliest servant. Maybe one of the most disgusting jobs in that day. I mean, like, like we don't even have feet that are that dirty. And if you had to wash someone's feet, other than like a cute little baby, uh, sometimes our kids run around barefoot, they come in and we've got to clean their feet off. So I'm like, ugh, how does feet get so gross? But, but washing the feet of another adult, we'd be like, ugh. Really? Do I have to do that? And if you were on the receiving end, you'd be like, don't wash my feet. Like, that's too far. Really? That's too personal. Like, we would feel uncomfortable doing it and having it done to us. And here's Jesus doing this, the, the Son of God, God in the flesh, going around to his disciples. Like, you can imagine the silence in the room. Like, everyone is uncomfortable with this. Why is this happening? And he makes his way around, washing the feet of Judas. Whom Jesus had known for a long time would betray him, literally washing the feet of his enemy. And then he gets to Peter and they have this great exchange in John chapter 13. Peter asking Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus responds, Peter, what I'm doing now, you don't realize, but later you will understand. And then Peter tells Jesus, the God man, you will never wash my feet. Have you ever told God you will never do something? I don't think I have. I don't think I ever want to. But here's Peter telling God in the flesh, you will never. And Jesus doesn't give him the death stare, doesn't hold his hand up like a Jedi. Yes, I will wash your feet. Of course you will. Jesus basically lets Peter have what he wants. He doesn't correct him. Okay, if that's what you want, then you can do that. But here's here's what you need to know, Peter. That's your choice. If I don't wash your feet, you will have no part of me. If there's one thing about Peter, Peter wanted Jesus. Peter wanted to be a part of Jesus. He wanted to be close to Jesus. Facing the reality of him not being with Jesus, Peter is humbled. Okay, not what I want, but what you want. I don't understand it, but that's okay. In fact, if that's the case, don't just wash my feet, wash my head and my hands. Give me the deluxe wash, Jesus, if it means I can be with you. 
You just love Peter. He's the chief disciple with foot and mouth disease, but he's also the chief disciple of unabashed love and affection for Jesus. And Jesus washes his feet. And after this, he tells all the disciples later in John 13, I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you and washing their feet, but even more, all the ways he had loved them. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A love flavored by humility, doing the lowly task to serve others for their good. Jesus, of course, isn't just the perfect example of this, but he is, in fact, who empowers our humility. If you look at Philippians 2, if you want to, you could turn there. Philippians 2, verses 1, there's a problem in this church, and Paul is trying to help this church get along. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ... If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And he says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. He says in verse 5, adopt The same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you, one translation says, that is in Christ. Because Christ is in you, we can have this same mind. Verse 6, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This church of Philippi had an issue of unity and Paul appeals to humility as a way out of their division. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but the interests of others have the same mind in you adopt this same attitude as that of Christ. And then we have this early church hymn exalting Jesus in his humility. He, did, he laid aside not his divine nature. He was still fully God, but he laid aside his divine privilege. What he deserved as God in the flesh was for everyone to bow down and worship him. But that wouldn't accomplish what needed to be accomplished for our salvation, death on the cross. So he had to hide that divine nature in humanity and not let it out. So that he looked like Jesus of Nazareth, a common man, a common carpenter, a common Jewish rabbi. Even though Jesus was never less than fully God. And as we see in Revelation, as we see on the Mount of Transfiguration, if we saw him in all of his divine glory, all we would do is bow and worship. It's like too much. But Jesus had to cover it so that he could be crucified. So that when you saw Jesus in the first century, you just saw another person. He didn't have like a neon sign on his head. I am God. He didn't glow. He wasn't a white European. His hair probably wasn't feathered. Popular mechanics, I think I've mentioned this before, did an excavation or they did an experiment where they looked at the common height of the common man in the first century. and, And they believed Jesus, if he was just an average person, was about five feet tall. We probably never imagined Jesus being five feet tall. But there was nothing about him. Isaiah 53 tells us nothing about his appearance that made us be like, oh, that's God. The only way you saw Jesus in the first century was through the eyes of faith, which is the only way we see Jesus today. 
You had to see beyond the humanity, to see the divinity, to see he, he was indeed the God-man, the Savior of the world. And Jesus, in this humble state, ended up obeying God even to the point of death. Like, how do you kill God? Well, you can't kill God. His divine nature did not die on the cross. His human nature died. Any moment he could have called his divine nature legions of angels to get him out of that situation. But he was humble and obedient to death on the cross. Someone so great that we find out in this passage that one day every knee will bow and confess who he is. Either you'll bow willingly because you love him or you'll bow forced to confess who he is because you don't really love him. But everyone will bow. This is how great he is. And he was crucified on the cross like a common thief or a criminal. And this is what Paul points to when he tells us to adopt the same attitude of Christ, the attitude of humility. And because Christ is alive in us, we too can exhibit and demonstrate this kind of humility. It's really important when you think about being humble to make sure you're rooting it in the person and work of Jesus who is alive in you. Because everything in our culture and everything in your flesh is going to fight this kind of humility. It is totally at odds with our society. And it is totally at odds with our flesh. And you're going to have to keep going back to Jesus for help to do this and continue to do this well. We're going to talk more about humility in the next verse, verse 6 next week. But humility was a virtue that had zero value in the first century Greco-Roman world. You won't find any Greek philosopher praising the virtue of humility. But everywhere you see it in the Bible, over 270 times, it's a virtue in praise. The Greek word humility literally means gentle, modest, deferential. Sometimes we've confused humility with a personality trait. So someone who's introverted seems to be more humble than someone who's extroverted. That's completely unbiblical. It has nothing to do with your introverted or extroverted. Has nothing to do if you're quiet or you're a loud person. Has nothing to do with your Enneagram number. Every one of those numbers can be incredibly arrogant and prideful, and everyone can be incredibly, incredibly humble. And it will look different. Humility has to do with the, the state of the heart. How do you understand your neediness? How do you understand where power comes from? How do you relate to people? Are you towering over people, using them to serve you and your interests? Are you getting low, serving people for their good? The Greco-Roman culture was built on power and fear, dominating others to get your way. And in some ways, our culture does that as well. Who can win? Who has the power, knowledge, and prestige to get their way? And in the midst of these cultures of power and control, there's this little community of people who are told, no, 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 wear humility like clothing. Let it be so obvious that it looks like you're wearing it like a, a cloth, a shirt, a pair of pants, a dress. Your humility is that obvious. We are gentle and deferential to each other. We don't demand our way. We get low and we serve. It's, it's actually essential to our faith as Christians. Like sometimes we treat these kind of virtues like a menu of options. We want to pick and choose the ones that are maybe easiest and ignore the rest. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Okay, today I'd like some love, joy, and peace. That'd be nice, but the rest, that's too hard. I don't really need those today. You can't do that. 
the, the Holy Spirit is alive in you. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God alive in you to make you more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, self, full of self-control. And here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. When he's alive inside of you, he who began a good work in you is going to finish. And so he's going to work in you and work in you and discipline you and shape you and chip away the old and infuse you with new life until you more and more get there. And you will get there. Sometimes, by God's grace, you walk willingly. Sometimes he drags you like a tempered tantrum throwing little toddler. But you will get there. Right? So we can't pick and choose. Humility, even more essential. Without humility, you can't even be a Christian. Like the opposite of humility is pride. Pride says, I don't need anyone else. I got this. Look at me. How smart, strong, amazing I am. Pride would tell God, of course you would save me. Look at all I bring to the table. In fact, I might not need you to save me because I can do it myself. Look at my accomplishments. Pride is independence and self-reliance. It's the drumbeat for much of our culture. And it's the essence of those far from God. Pride says, I don't need the opinions of others. I know best. And maybe it flows from a genuine arrogance. Like you think you're the smartest person in the room. So you're popped up with pride. I know best. What can you really tell me? I've got all the answers. I've figured this out. Or your arrogance could or your pride could flow from like fear. Like I, I want to stay hidden. So I'm kind of acting in a very prideful way because I don't want people to know how needy I am. And how broken I really am and how wounded I really am. So this self-dependence, this self-reliance, this Arrogance is just you masking how needy you really are. Humility brings all of that down and allows you to be real and be open. Pride will keep you from God. Pride will keep you from his salvation and his kingdom. Humility is being honest, open, and transparent about our need. I'm helpless and I need God to save me. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, the humble, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who aren't meek or humble won't be in the kingdom. Jesus praised the tax collector who gathered at the temple uh, with his face hanging low, beating on his chest. Have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. Jesus said that's humility. That's neediness. Jesus condemned the Pharisee who looked down on the tax collector and said, thank you, God. I'm not like that tax collector. That's self-righteousness. That's pride. But even our passage shows us this, quoting from Proverbs, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Like who wants to be in a position of God resisting you, you against God? That's a lose-lose situation, not only because God always wins, he'll never win, but in fact, you will suffer more because you lost, because you miss out on him. You miss out on what he has for you. The, the most loving, kind, gracious, compassionate person in the universe who just wants to give you grace. And all it requires from you is unclenching your fist and pride and arrogance and opening them up to receive his grace. And once we've been given his grace and humility, then we can share his grace and humility and kindness toward one another. Like imagine a community of people who's demonstrating grace, kindness, deference, seeking to pick, pick each other up and not tear each other down. Seeking to include and bring in and not push away and ostracize. Seeking to serve others in love, even the lowliest task, washing the feet kind of task. It doesn't matter what it costs me, time, money, energy. How can I help love you and serve you? If you're sick, if you need a meal, if you need transportation, if you need help on your house, if you need someone to listen. I'm not calculating 
well, how can I do everything I want to do and then fit them in where I might have a little bit of time? It's how can I sacrifice what I want to do to give them this? Because they have a need and I can help and I can love because your interests are that important to me. Your needs are that important. Guys, if we're all just living for our own individual kingdoms, we'll always struggle to get along because our individual kingdoms will constantly be waging war with each other. This would just be like an all-out street battle in your home or in the church. But if in humility we're laying down the rights and desires of each of our individual kingdoms to prioritize the kingdom of Jesus, then our lives become part of something much bigger and more transformational than each of us just trying to build our little empires. With each of us demanding our own way, each of us demanding our rights, in humility we lay that aside and we seek to serve, help, and love. And this is where we find his grace to help us and we don't live a life of opposition to God. And so how are you doing in following the leadership God's provided for you in the local church, especially if you're young? How are you letting Christ give you his grace and humility to show kindness, deference, and gentleness and love to serve one another? Like, is your life consumed with, what about me? What do I get? When do I get what I want? I want my way. I know best. I got this. I don't need any help from anyone. Others are in my life to serve my interest. Instead of, God's put them in my life so I can serve and help them. God, grow us in our humility. God, help us humble ourselves. And if we won't humble ourselves, then we should pray, God, humble us. Break us of our pride and arrogance. And to whatever degree you're hearing this and you're like, I'm the worst at this. Then your response is humility. Admit that. Own that. Be okay. Yeah. We all stink at this. But God's grace comes to you in your humility. Right? The bad place to be is, yeah, I'm probably not good at this. Um, but I don't really want to get honest about that. I'm just going to keep hiding that, keep masking that. And God will continue to oppose you. And you won't find his grace. So, Father, help us to respond in humility to the truth of your word in whatever ways we do this well. It's only by your grace so that only you get the glory and the honor and only you are praised because it's all you are the source of all the good that we do and all the good that we are. And everyone in this room fails in many, many ways in humility. Prideful arrogance is at the tip of our tongues. It's we wear it. As clothes sometimes, it just oozes out of our flesh. And so I pray that today the Spirit of God would humble us and allow us to humble ourselves. That we would be okay with being completely needy, completely broken, completely transparent, completely authentic in the fact how needy we are. Desperately needy for your grace. And Father, we praise you that in that place of neediness, that's where we get your grace. So help us to experience that today. I pray for anyone who's uh, never come alive in Christ Jesus, that today will be the day of their salvation as they in humility repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, that he's done everything necessary to save them now and forever. And enable them to declare that to the person they came with, the person sitting around them. So they can be discipled and taught how to follow Jesus. Bless this time of worship, we pray in Jesus' name.